Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's God's word for God's people today. You may be seated. Let's pray once again and ask for God's help. So Father, we come this morning recognizing that your word is life. So we take these few moments out of a busy week filled with opportunities to find life elsewhere and ask that you would feed us from your word, that you would make us more like your son, that you would teach us what we don't know and give us what we don't have so that we might live this week for the sake of your glory alone, we pray. Amen. So we've been digging into uh, the fruit of the Spirit this summer, seeing how the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of God's people is actually rooted first in God's character. And so the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is contrasted with the works of the flesh, those things that the sinful human nature produces naturally and flow naturally out of us. Uh, in the verse 20, one of the specific works of the flesh named is fits of anger. Fits of anger. And I wonder if you, like me, when you think about fits of anger and the world we live in, doesn't that categorize or define things so well? I mean, you don't go very long in our world before you see or hear a fit of anger. Even when people who are discussing a topic are in agreement with one another, how quickly do conversations like that slide into anger towards those people who disagree? So even if people who do agree find ways to get to fits of anger, how much more when people who don't agree begin discussing things? Now, last week, one of our politicians categorized another politician in the opposing party with a phrase that made them look weak. And then the response was basically, I wasn't going to say anything, but now that they've started it, and then they attempted to finish it with even more name-calling and vitriol, which, again, you know, regardless of what side of the aisle you might be on, these are the people running our country that like, act like children on the playground so often with the name-calling and the fits of anger. And this type of interaction isn't just relegated to the political realm. So much of our world lives in constant outrage. And it's easily ignited. Now, there's a recent documentary that explores how technology and media often fill us with rage by grabbing our attention with something that's going to cause fear or discontentment with us and then giving us an easy way to express an intense reaction as we see others who similarly feel and think the same way as we do uh, are reacting strongly. We get in this cycle of a fit of rage, this constant outrage. And the problem isn't reacting to something, but the way in which we react. In other words, we're not talking about never responding or letting everything go. We're talking about how God's people 
are to respond to people or situations. The world we live in doesn't respond with gentleness, often because being gentle is seen as being weak. Gentleness is too easily dismissed as inaction or being timid or cowardly. But gentleness isn't any of those things. It isn't weakness or inaction or cowardice. Gentleness is actually strength in service of the good of others. Gentleness is actually a way you use your strength. It's not using it at all or, or, uh, or, or missing an opportunity, being timid or shying away from something. Gentleness is actually using your power for the good of others. And so as we've done with the previous fruit of the Spirit, we're going to start first with how gentleness is rooted in God's character, and then we'll see how that root produces the fruit of gentleness in the lives of God's people. So first, the root of God's gentleness. David says this in Psalm 18. David says in Psalm 18, you, he's talking about God, have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. Your gentleness made me great. And when you think about it, this is really one of the most remarkable verses in the Psalms. Because the psalmists are usually extolling God's greatness, how great God is. And we're making much of God and his greatness. He's the great God. We're just creatures. We're fallen and we're fickle, but he is great. He is glorious. He's most high. So we're going to sing of his greatness. But in Psalm 18, David writes about how God used his might, his power, and he made David great. How God exalted David. And at the beginning of Psalm 18, David does extol God and his greatness. He's telling about how awesome God is. But then when he turns to how God has acted towards David, he says, God, you're kind and gracious dealings with me throughout my life had made me great. You, the great God, have made me great. And think about David's life. Uh, He was the youngest. And when Samuel came to anoint a king from the family of Jesse, they brought seven of the eight brothers before Samuel. David being number eight, they didn't even think about getting him. They're like, surely, by the time we ever, we won't need David because Samuel's going to find someone way before that kid. And they left him out in the field. And, and later on, you know, he was treated harshly by his brothers throughout his life. Then he was mocked in front of his entire nation's army by Goliath and his enemies. And then Saul spent years uh, with deadly intentions trying to murder David. Then his own son tried to do the same thing. I mean, David's life was one of harsh mistreatment. But God was always gentle towards David. God's gentleness exalted David above his family and above his enemies. Look again at verse 35 of Psalm 18. Look how David describes God's gentleness. He says, You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. And often in Hebrew poetry, these lines are paralleling each other, meaning they're just describing what each line means in different ways. And so David is describing, he's he's defining what it means for God to be gentle. That God shielded David and saved him. 
even though David didn't deserve it, even though David was weak and needy and helpless, God came to David's help. The great God didn't demand David help him. God used his greatness and exalted David. And so when David is looking back on the course of his life, and he, he looks back over all the, all the things that have happened, and he sits down and he's writing Psalm 18. He, he says, God, you shielded me. God, the great God of the universe supported me. He helped me. He upheld me at all those moments when everything seemed lost and the various enemies were against me and trying to kill me. You supported me. You exalted me. And so David attributes this to God's gentleness. God's gentleness. Which means, again, gentleness is not weakness. It's not inaction. It's not timidity or cowardice. It's actually far from those things. Gentleness is strength used for the good of another. And so while a word search may not turn up many explicit mentions of gentleness, when you know what gentleness is, you can see God's gentleness throughout the Bible. How God uses his power, his might, for the good of his people. We see it in creation. Our triune God didn't create because he had some unfulfilled need that he was looking to fill, but actually because he wanted his creation to enjoy all his fullness. So God used his power for our good, not because he needed something from us, but so that we could enjoy him. Listen to Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't need us to provide a house for him. Nor is he served by human hands. He's not looking around waiting for us to help him as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God created to give us his fullness to help us share in his life. God's gracious disposition to give life and breath and everything out of his fullness is God's gentleness towards us. God didn't create because he had some void to fill, but God created because he desired to share with us his overflowingly happy life so that we would know his goodness. And not only in creation do we see God's gentleness, but also in salvation. When, when Adam and Eve's sin ruined creation, we see God gently come into the garden, not on a warpath of judgment, but we see his gentleness. He moves towards them with promises of salvation that God himself will accomplish by his own strength. He doesn't make Adam and Eve make amends. He says, I will. I will send a son who will finally crush your great enemies. And how else, other than gentleness, could you describe God's dealings with uh, his people in the Old Testament? How often was God gentle towards Israel? I mean, they frequently forgot God. They regularly rebelled against God. They were incessant in their idolatry all the time, worshiping false gods rather than the one true God. And every time they cried out to God for help, he came running. He answered. He came running to their rescue. 
And listen to how Isaiah 40 puts God's regular running to his people with salvation. It says, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arms rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Again, that's, that's biblical gentleness. That's might, that's strength in service of other people's good. Not weakness, not timidity, not inaction, but moving mightily for the good of others. And, and God does this towards his people who keep flaunting the rebellion in his face, who treat him cheaply and dishonor him regularly. Our God picks them up and carries them close to his chest like a mother picks up her newborn baby. Doesn't crush, but holds fast for the good of others. And that's in spite of the fact that their sin deserves judgment. I mean, God pardons it. That's how Isaiah 40 begins. They are sinful, but God pardons their sin in verse 1. In spite of their regular rebellion and how much they dishonor God. He says, there's none like me. You treat me like everything's like me. Like I'm not special at all. Throughout Isaiah 40, he's saying, but there's none like me. To a people who dishonor him all the time. And then he says, I'm going to do this on your behalf. I will accomplish my purposes. My might will come with me, and I will gently carry you home. That's our gentle God. God is gentle. And so I wonder, when you think about God, does gentleness ever come to mind? Do you think about God in terms of gentleness? I mean, especially in those moments when your sin and your failures and your rebellion and your idolatry and your transgressions, your dishonoring, your forgetting God, when all those things begin to loom large and, and they begin to block your view of him, I wonder if you remember that God is gentle. And I wonder if you this morning know how pivotal it is to know that God is gentle, especially in moments like these. You see, it's not that God adds gentleness to what he does. I like, I like adding hot dog or ketchup and mustard to my hot dogs, right? I do not add mayo. So I saw someone adding mayo to a hot dog, and I was like, that is an affront to America. Like, that's, that's I don't even know who you are, you know? But some of you like mayo, and that's okay. My family adds ketchup to ta tacos, right? Yeah, ketchup on a taco. I don't, I, I look at them, and we still fight about it. I mean, I've been married for over 20 years. I'm still like, what are you doing to that taco? I would never add ketchup to a taco. And you, you all are with me, right? It's okay. Well, there's grace for people like my family. But when we think about gentleness like that, like it's something that God's got to add to rather than actually who he is, we might be tempted to think there are times when actually God won't add gentleness then, when, when God won't remember to be gentle, or we catch him on a bad day, 
Or maybe he's used up his gentleness for other people, and by the time someone like me gets to God at the end of the day, well, his gentleness quota has been met, and so he's got no more left for me. But that can never be. Because gentleness flows from God's heart. He is a gentle God. And you can be sure of this, not only because of God's perfect past record of gentleness, but also because God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is gentle. God incarnate is gentle. And, and he tells us this in Matthew 11. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the, the whole of the New Testament testifies that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells perfectly. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And so when Jesus tells us that he is gentle of heart, he's telling us what God's heart is like. What, what is God actually like? And I love how Dane Ortland explains this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says this, As the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that Jesus is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. When he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. And when, you, when, when Jesus tells us about himself, he says, who I really am deep down is I'm gentle. Gentleness will then characterize how he deals even with sinners like us all the time. But when you feel the weight of your failures, your neediness, your helplessness, your weakness, and your burdens, and your next thought is, the God of the universe doesn't have time for someone like me, someone who can't offer him anything, who keeps failing, who's constantly needy. And if I show up like this, surely I'm about to get another earful of how I don't have it all together. And it's in those moments that you must remember that Jesus is gentle. And remember his words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not... Come to me, all you who have it figured out and have things going on for them. It's come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And maybe one day I can grow up to be a good preacher, but until then, I'll just have to use Charles Spurgeon when he says things like this. He says, come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you. Well, you say, Lord, I can't give you anything. He does not want anything. Come to Jesus, and he says, I will give you. It's not what you give to God 
but what he gives to you will be your salvation. I will give you. That's the gospel in four words. If you want to explain the gospel to someone, you can do it in four words. I will give you. Jesus will give you. It's not what you can give to God, but what he will give to you that is your salvation. And that's due to his gentleness. He does not give you what you deserve, but Jesus bore it instead in your behalf. And so praise God for his gentle heart towards sinners. And the gospel calls sinners to come to Jesus with your hands full of burden and need, not with your hands full of what you've done or things you might try to merit his goodness and his favor towards you, not even hands full of promises. Okay, from now on, Lord, if you do this, from now on, from now on, I'll be. No, it's none of those things. Come to God with nothing but your brokenness and your inability to do anything that merits salvation. And in those moments, Jesus promises to be gentle and give you what you need. Rest. Rest from your weariness. Rest from your work. Rest from the cycle of trying to earn and merit God's salvation and favor. And instead of giving you what you deserve, you get rest. And that's because our Savior is gentle. He says, all you have is need? That's great. Because all I have is abundant rest. And so come. And it is wonderfully good news that Jesus only deals gently with sinners. But only gently with sinners who come to him. So come. And know you will be treated gently because that's his heart. He isn't gentle sometimes and harsh other times, depending on when you catch him or how great your sin is. He's always gentle because God already poured out all his wrath against your sin at the cross. And it was finished on the cross. So there's nothing left for those who come to Jesus to bear. That's why he will give you. He will take what, all that you have and he gives you all that you need. And friend, whoever means whoever. If you are weary and burdened this morning, hear Jesus' call for salvation and rest. And come. Find your rest in Jesus today. And so that's the root of God's gentleness. It's who he is, so it flows in everything he does. And that leads to the Spirit growing the fruit of gentleness in God's people. Because God is gentle, God's people will be gentle. And so I want to highlight two ways the Spirit produces the fruit of gentleness in our lives. The Spirit produces gentleness and before we get into them, I just want to remind you that the Spirit grows these things. The Spirit is at work in God's people to, to produce and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. What comes not of us naturally are those things that are characterized as the work of the flesh. And so what the Spirit does is when it, we are united with Jesus, the Spirit begins to transform us into the image of the one we're united with. So as Jesus is gentle, so will his people be. But the Spirit enables us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in these ways. And so though the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, the, the grace the Spirit gives his people will actually help us cultivate this fruit along with him. 
And so we're working in tandem here with the fruit of the Spirit because of the grace the Spirit gives us. And so I want us to highlight then two ways the Spirit gives this grace to us and makes us more gentle. First, gentleness grows as you rest in Jesus. As you rest in Jesus. So gentleness will not flow through you if you walk out of here and say, okay, heard a good sermon on gentleness. Uh, I'm going to go try harder. You know how long that will last, especially as soon as someone cuts you off on the way home, right? So, so it's not beginning by trying harder. Actually, gentleness grows as you rest in Jesus. You will only use your strength to serve the good of others if you are secure in Jesus and have been gently served by him. Let me me tell you what I mean by that. When, When your hope and identity and your joy, your peace, your life, when you're finding those things, Uh, in things other than Jesus, or you're trying to find those things in Jesus plus other things, when those other things are threatened, you will use your strength for the good of yourself and the detriment of others. That's one reason why we live in such a hostile, angry age, where people attempt to crush their opponents in vengeance, where people gleefully gloat over other people's failures and downfalls, Because life has become this zero-sum game where the thing they're seeking their life and hope and joy in is slipping away from them or is being threatened, and so they lash out in an attempt to secure it. And so that's where fits of anger come, when we're putting our hope in false gods that can't actually give us what they promise. But when your security, when your life, when your hope, when your joy and peace are found in Jesus— which then cannot be taken away from you, gentleness will characterize your interactions with others. Gentleness means that we stop viewing other people as opponents that must not be allowed to win and instead begin viewing them as image of God bearers. And I'm not saying that we don't stand for truth, but that we speak truthfully with the good of the other person in mind. What good is an argument if we win it and yet never point them to the God that deep down is the only one that can fulfill all their hopes and longings? And so again, it's not that we never respond or that we don't say anything or that we let everything go, but it's how we respond. And we must respond with gentleness, which is using our strength in service of another's good, even when the other person doesn't have our good in mind. We don't get to rationalize our fit of anger because someone was first angry with us. It's the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, even in the face of others not having our good in mind. And it's so easy to dehumanize each other today. We we make it so easy to not be gentle, (laughs) whether it's because we're behind a keyboard or we can't see the other person or because in our world opponents are so quickly and easily vilified and they're spoken of in terms that make them less than human, the Spirit's fruit of gentleness will not allow us to use our power to dehumanize other people, but rather to use our strength for their good. So how do we do that? Well, listen to Proverbs 15. 
Verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, the word soft there is often translated throughout the Old Testament as gentle. So again, it's not that we don't answer, but that we answer gently. And notice the difference there in Proverbs, uh, verse 1, between an answer and a word. An answer uh, means a lengthy response or a conversation or talking with the other person in a gentle way. But a word means a word. Quick, harsh. An answer uh, takes time, doesn't it? And a gentle, ta- a gentle answer takes even more time because it takes an effort to really get to the heart of the matter. Because so often in, in these fits of rage and in our outright culture, we're not actually fighting about what we're actually fighting about. Like, it's, it's more down deep. I mean, we can fight all day about the things up here. But really, to get to the heart of the matter, what are we really talking about? Well, that takes effort and time to untangle these things. What are people, where are people finding their identity? What are they hoping in for joy? Where are they finding their life? Why is this such a huge deal to them? And to, to then answer gently and engage with someone, well, that takes time. And to take the time to do that, rather than blowing someone off or blowing them up, is actually to use your strength in service of the good of another. That's gentleness. But when we use our strength self-servingly, we leave a trail of destruction. You've been on the brunt end of a harsh word before. You've probably also given one. And do you know why a single harsh word stirs up anger? Because when we use that harsh word, we're usually trying to wound somebody. How many arguments have you been in because you said a single word? Because you knew right in that moment how you could needle it. You're like, oh, I got it. Here we go. You want to fight? Let's do it. And you say one thing, and there's there's the anger. It stirred it up. And that's using your strength for yourself, not for the good of others. And so our tongues are very powerful. And when used in service of self, they're quite destructive. But consider how powerful a tool for good the tongue can be when it's used by someone who's resting in Jesus. When you're secure and peaceful and joyful and full in Jesus, and those things can't be taken away no matter what anyone else says or does, when you're not so easily threatened and anxious, how powerful a tool can the tongue be for those who are resting in Jesus? Listen to just a couple verses later in Proverbs 14, tell, or Proverbs 15, tell us this. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Isn't that an interesting image? Where was the tree of life in the Old Testament? In the Garden of Eden. And then it was guarded and, and blocked once Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden. And most likely, the tree was then destroyed by the flood, or at least rendered not needing to be guarded anymore by cherubim. And, and that's, that's the tree of life, something that produces, sustains, enhances, fulfills. And that was gone. 
once sin entered the world. But, but now when Solomon considers these things thousands of years later, he says a gentle tongue is actually a tree of life. Which instead of just one tree of life in one single spot in the world, isn't it fascinating to think that there could be millions of trees of life around? To help people find it? To find the life they're looking for? To find the hope and the peace and the joy that deep down they're longing for? And our tongues could be used in such a way that it has a, a similar effect to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? And it's because we've been given life through the gracious gift of God that God's people can use their strength to bring life rather than harm, to serve others rather than to serve ourselves, which is the same way Jesus served us. And so, brothers and sisters, as you rest in Jesus, as you find your life and your peace and your joy in him, and what he gives you in spite of what our sin deserved, we can be a tree of life to those who come into contact with our gentleness. Just our demeanor, our listening ear, our attempt to serve their good can bring about the goodness of God in other people's lives. And that's then another way, at least to a second way, that the Spirit cultivates gentleness in God's people. Because gentleness then is actually true greatness. Gentleness is true greatness. Gentleness is not weakness, it's greatness. And when the disciples heard that uh, James and John had asked Jesus if that when he entered into his glory, if they could sit on his right and his left, remember this story? When the other disciples heard what John and James had asked, they were really upset. Probably because they were upset that James and John beat him to the punch. They're like, Those are, that was my seat, man. I was going to ask him tomorrow. I can't believe you did that to me. They weren't upset. <laughs> they weren't upset for the real. They were upset at what they might be losing out on. They were grasping for their I, this identity that they were holding on to. That they thought, man, this is where I'll finally be someone. If I'm right next to Jesus in his glory. And Jesus actually turns this all into a teaching moment on true greatness in Mark chapter 10. He says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if gentleness is service in the good of others and serving others is greatness, well then true greatness is actually gentleness. Gentleness isn't weakness or timidity or inaction. It's using your strength for the good of others. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, let me tell you how. Isn't that also fascinating? Jesus doesn't dismiss striving for greatness. He actually tells you how you can be great. And it's not found in worldly positions of power, but in lowly, humble service of others, which is 
the same way Jesus came to us, gentle and lowly in heart. He came to serve, not to be served. And so, Jesus, when he saves a people, his spirit will transform those people into a humble, serving people. And so one way, then, that the spirit cultivates gentleness in our lives is actually providing opportunities for you to serve and then giving you the grace to choose greatness in those moments, not to serve yourself, but to serve others. So the Spirit grows gentleness in our lives by helping us choose true greatness in every interaction with others. I can lay down my desire then to win an argument at another's expense, not, not the expense of truth, but I don't have to destroy somebody else, diminish them, demean them, dehumanize them, just to win the argument. I don't, I don't have to get ahead by putting others down. I don't even have to right every wrong I face, even the true wrongs because God knows the truth. And so I entrust myself to him, and then I will choose in those moments to use the strength God has given me to serve others good, to be gentle. How often have you railed at God? And all you've received was gentleness. And so what kind of an impact do you think a gentle people could have in our community? Sure, we, we could get miscategorized or dismissed as weak or coward, timid. Who cares what they say? <laughs> What's the truth? What would God see our interaction as? And what, what an impact a gentle people could have in an age of outrage. I mean, what kind of impression would a gentle church make when so much of other our, our world's interaction is defined by hostility. It might, it might strike some people strange. Sure, maybe we'll get called names, or you'll get tempted, you know, you'll get egged on, noodled to being, uh, to join into the fit of anger. But, but maybe, like Peter says in his first letter, maybe when you show gentleness, there will be times when someone wonders, what kind of hope do you have that you have that kind of reaction in the world we live in? That you're so unthreatened, so that you have such a non-anxious presence about you. You're secure. You have rest. You have life and joy and peace in the chaos of this world. How can you be like you are? I mean, maybe more and more people who encounter our gentleness would wonder about the hope that we have and ask us about it. So maybe we could be a people whose words give life rather than break down and destroy. A people who view others as image bearers rather than existential threats if they don't agree with me. A people who don't get down into the mud with the world around us, but actually use our strength to pull people out of the pits of destruction and, and mire and point them to the one who can fulfill their every hope and longing. Maybe we could be a people whose gentleness reflects the gentleness of God. And so, brothers and sisters, may your resting in the gentle grace of Jesus give you such peace in our hostile world that you're a vessel of his gentle grace to everyone you meet.
so they might come to know the gentle heart of our gracious God. Let's pray. Father, when we look back like David did at the beginning of Psalm 18, upon the course of our lives, about how much you've done for us, about how you used your power to not only create us, but then to redeem us, and then to transform us, and then to sustain us, and then to carry us home. We look back on your shield and your support, and we stand in awe of your gentleness towards us. That rather than giving us what we deserved, your Son came to save us. And so we pray that more and more as we walk through this world, that you would give us the grace to reflect your gentleness so that others who don't know you might come to know you and your gentleness in Jesus. And we know there's coming a day when you will no longer be gentle with sin. But we pray now in the meantime as we wait for that last day that you would use us to make disciples of our neighbors and the nations so they, make, they might come to know the glory of your gentleness towards sinners like us. So not only help us to come and rest in Jesus, but to call our neighbors and the nations to do the same. And do what we pray for the glory of your name in this day. Amen.